You're listening to In a Perfect Policy, where we fantasize about perfect solutions to very real issues. My name is Caitlin. I'm Shannon. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jenny. And together, we're part of Catalyst for Science Policy, part of the National Science Policy Network. For the first season of this podcast, we're going to be focusing on leveraging science and technology to benefit marginalized populations. In other words, how can our conversations about emerging scientific or technological advancements interact with social justice and human rights? For our first episode, we sat down with Joe Handelsman and Derek Smith, both of whom know quite a bit about the subject and both of whom have fairly extensive credentials, so I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. I'm Joe Handelsman. I'm the director of the Wisconsin Institute for Discovery and a professor in the plant pathology department here at UW-Madison. And before I was here, I was a science advisor for President Obama for three years at the White House. Before that, I was a professor at Yale, and before that, I was a professor here at UW. So um, I've bounced around a bit. Um, The work I've done in diversity in science has related to the science of diversity in science, doing experiments and studies to understand um, why there are differences in representation of different groups in science, Uh, working on programs to enhance diversity in science, and working with President Obama on several initiatives to try to implement some of those principles at the national level. Uh, Derek Smith, Director of Development here at WID. Uh, before I started, I am a biochemist uh, by degree and I've uh, been working for 40 years in the science field, uh, Baxter Healthcare uh, for a number of years and Thermoscience um, TIFIC for a number of years, mainly on the sales and marketing end of science. Um, uh, it's always been uh, my dream to get more people of color, underrepresented people into STEM that uh, I'm one of the founding members, 100 black men here in Madison. And so one of our goals is to uh, mentor young African-American men and women. And then also too, I am in the chair of the board of the Urban League here in Madison. Started by asking Joe and Derek what the difficulties are for underrepresented groups in STEM. Uh, I think there are different levels of barriers. And one that I think is quite um, significant is outright prejudice against women and minorities moving into STEM, people simply believing that they can't do the job, or the old line which you don't hear said out loud anymore, but I know people think it, that um, why should I hire that person? She's a woman, she's just going to get pregnant and leave my lab. That kind of philosophy has gone a little bit underground, but is still deeply embedded. Some of it is unconscious bias, and that is in many ways more insidious and harder to deal with because what people say out loud and even think is going on is not really what's happening and what's driving decision making. And so a very simple example of unconscious bias where people get the wrong answer is if you ask a man and a woman to stand in a doorway and you ask people to estimate their heights, people will overestimate the height of the man and underestimate the height of the woman. And that's based on a real difference between men and women. Men are on average taller than women, but 
that doesn't lead them to the right answer. It gets even worse when it starts being differences that don't even exist, but people still apply those prejudices or stereotypes that they believe exist to who they're going to hire, who they'll admit to graduate school, who they encourage. And so I think the unconscious bias area has finally begun to come to the, the fore and be discussed and dealt with uh, at uh, kind of a national, maybe even international level in science, but we're far from solving the problem. Um, and then I think there's a whole nother layer of uh, behavior that drives um, women and minorities out of science. And that is typically thought of in women as harassment and in minorities it can be harassment or just behavior that makes an unwelcoming environment. And it doesn't have to be due to any particular bias, it's just acceptable behaviors that the society has not fought against sufficiently. And those, I think, are the three big drivers uh, of women and minorities either leaving science or not being encouraged um, in the first place. And it happens, some of it happens very young, you know, with, with kids. Uh, they're seeing images of scientists when they're in middle school. That seems to be a very formative period when kids uh, seem to lose their intent to um, focus on science for a career. They look around and they don't see uh, women, they don't see black people, they don't see um, non-heterosexual white men, basically, in roles in science. And the result is they think, well, I can't do that because I don't see people who, who do it. It certainly is affected by parents and teachers, stereotypes and prejudices. That's been shown with many research studies. Um, and so kids aren't getting the right encouragement if they're not members of the certain group, which happens to be white and male. Uh, and then it continues on at every, every juncture, going into college, leaving college, graduate school, postdoc, and then in the workforce. I want to take it uh, just a little bit, uh, a different um, spin at it. I think uh, a lot of this goes back um, over 400 years of our country's existence and how we started as a country and the uh, slavery and uh, Jim Crow and I think a lot of things came out of that, the cultural competency issues uh, that Joe talked about a little bit. Um, you know, when you have a whole group of people uh, based either on gender and or of color, right? Those are the obvious physical things that people can identify by, right? And over the course of our history, uh, that's been an issue, an issue that most people don't uh, want to talk about even today, right? There's so many stereotypes about different things. And growing up in the environment where I grew up in, um, you know, it wasn't um, cool, it wasn't uh, black enough to be involved in science, right? And, and so there's not only explicit and implicit stigma from white folks, there's a lot of that internally among my own people that you have to deal with there, right? And so all of that kind of goes back to the color, gender issues that we've had in, the, in this country and we still have. I mean, you have people here that say that black folks still, to this day, don't have the mental capacity to do what we do, right? Um, a lot of people to this day said females don't have the physical capacity uh, to do what needs to be done to be in a strenuous job or to be in an environment that's uh, predominantly all male. 
So uh, with that, I think a lot of what both Joe and I have had to do in our careers is to be uh, kind of straightforward in our own thought, right, and straightforward in our own ideas. And I'm not saying these things that people thought about five, six, seven years ago. I just had a conversation with a gentleman the other day um, who says, well, you folks have, you know, um, you know, thicker bones, so that's why you can't swim. And I just kind of just kind of just... Uh, I kind of just, um, you know, just kind of, if you could see my face now through this podcast, <laughs> uh, it, yeah, and wow. if, if you could have, you could have felt my, um, my temperature rising internally a little mm -hmm. bit, uh, but I think it did a pretty good job of just getting up and walking away. But uh, the presupposition that we have about people um, is what some of the things that we have to overcome. So it might seem a little bit obvious but I was wondering if each of you could touch on briefly how it is that this lack of representation is affecting the work that is done in STEM fields. Well, that's a simple and enormous answer. It's hurting the quality of the science we produce. And there is copious evidence from scientific studies and you know, long field in sociology, political science, and psychology showing that the more diverse a group is, the more creative and effective it is at, at solving problems and developing solutions. And the more homogeneous it is, the less effective it is. And that goes from, you know, putting out uh, brush fires in Australia to mock juries to just about any kind of problem solving you can do. It's been shown over and over. And so if you look at the lack of diversity in science, you could argue that we've set ourselves up to be as ineffective as uh, we could possibly be from a, a social perspective. Um, the science would be so much better, and anyone who's run a research lab knows this. You know, when you say to, to faculty, well, would you like to have a lab with, you know, 12 clones of yourself? Most of them would say, no, that would be kind of boring. No, no, that's not true. Some of them say, yeah, that sounds really good, but <laughs> they're the minority. Most people think that sounds kind of boring, you know, that you don't want everyone thinking the same. So if you extrapolate that and you say, well, if you could bring in people of lots of different backgrounds with degrees in lots of different areas who grew up in different parts of the world or country, who had different educational experiences, different life experiences, think how much more interesting your lab would be, sometimes people can extrapolate and see that if really, really homogeneous isn't good, then maybe more and more heterogeneous could bring greater quality. And that's where we're absolutely lacking perspective. I think it also affects the areas of science that are pursued because women and minorities often will pursue, um, there's certainly no um, hard rule on this or um, general generality that you can make, but there is some tendency of women and minorities to focus more on social good and issues in science that affect the quality of life for other people. And so there we're, we're missing all sorts of things, but I think the, the overall lack is in the intellectual brain power that we're losing, um, the creativity, uh, the innovation, and then ultimately the areas that are just being ignored because the majority isn't isn't pursuing them. Uh, I would say that there's uh, also another side to that. I think is a recognition of people of color and, and women in science. 
Um, you know, there are so many things that we take uh, for granted. The idea that the street sign, uh, the patent, was by a black man, right? And people don't know that. The only thing they know about is George Washington Carver and, and the peanut uh, process, right? But there's been a lot of uh, advances in science and in engineering that have been brought forward by women and minorities. But again, there either are um, um, taken away or absconded by somebody else's to say that's their intellectual property. Also, I think among minorities, particularly among black um, people, there's a stigma about science, right? Uh, you go back to the syphilis issues and the Tuskegee um, uh, issues with, you know, doing experiments on black folks and, and infecting them with different types of diseases and then not telling them for many years. You got the, you know, the um, the lackey cells and, you know, the different things that people utilize and take for granted that, you know, these are from people who had no way of knowing that they, they were being taken advantage of. But once the word gets out in the black community, that kind of makes it hard to say, well, why should I get into science? And, and when we do do something that's, that's out there, then we don't get the credit for it. And that stigma that science has of hurting uh, black people has had a real impact on who will participate in research studies. When I was in the White House, this is something we dealt with, and it was one of the most painful things that President Obama and I uh, ever talked about, because if you don't get minority groups into the studies that we do, then one, you're lacking statistical power. If you don't have minorities in those studies, then you can't apply the research to their lives because they may have different, even though there isn't a genetic definition of race, those people will have a, probably a different physiology on average, and um, they may respond to drugs differently. Um, even in mouse studies, they use only male mice, just because they say, well, we want homogeneity. And, you know, okay, so, uh, you know, <laughs> large portion of our research doesn't apply to female mice even. And then you start looking at the research that doesn't apply to um, women and minorities. And then when, when someone finally does the experiment, they find out that a drug has the opposite effect in women or uh, a differential dose is needed if you're giving it to people of a certain group, then everyone's shocked. But why should we be shocked? You know, these are, these are different groups, and that's the reason to include them. But when I worked on Pre President Obama's Precision Medicine Initiative, that was one of the frightening parts, was getting these minority groups into this massive study that we were planning, which is now uh, ongoing. Um, was an enormous challenge, and we're now reaping the uh, the devastation of what we've done as a profession for so many decades, um, and we now can't compensate for it because we've created such ill will in minority communities. And to take what Joe said a little bit um, further and, and more uh, personal, I have two uh, female friends of mine who are uh, black females who are suffering from uh, breast cancer. And some of the things that they have options are, are some new um, medicines, some trials. And so for them, the question that I ask them to ask their doctors and is ask them, well, how many uh, trials do they have on black women? And um, they asked the question, and all the trials, every last one of them did not have one single black woman involved Aww. in the trial. 
And so how do you take that as part of you? You have a life-threatening disease. You have an opportunity maybe to uh, do something that could help that. But yet, in your mind, you're not sure because the trials were never done on people who look or are like you. Wow. So these are all very difficult issues, a lot of different issues connected. And so in this podcast, we're sort of interested in how people approach these issues. And so we're wondering, from your perspective, if you can implement any policy at any level, international or federal, state, local, wherever you want, you just have sort of a magic wand to put something in place to sort of start to address this. What policies would you want to see? I think policies are great, but thought process is even better, right? I mean, the fact of the matter is policies are based on situations that are existing, right? And so we put policies in place to hopefully overcome some different things, right? Uh, and I think they're great and they're fine uh, if, if thought out properly and engaged properly and funded properly. The issue comes down to me personally is the fact that how do we change our thought process about each other, right? There's no policy that is going to allow you to feel better about somebody if you don't, right? Or not to be prejudiced or not have biases about somebody if you don't, regardless of what and who they are. So I think if I had a magic wand, I'd probably hit everybody upside the head and say, wake up, you know, and, um, and say, hey, you know, we're all in this world together. We're all breathing the same air. We all drink the same water um, for, for those who have water, and that's a whole different story. And so I think having policies that deal with the changing of thought process, positive thought process, would go a long way for me. So one example of a policy that I think really does make a difference is uh, long ago training grants that fund um, graduate students and postdocs in the sciences um, were required to include an ethics training. And that was protested at first, but people didn't protest a lot because it was training grants and faculty see that kind of as, as free money that they don't have to work for somebody else gets the grant. So it's the easiest way to make change at a federal level in science, in my opinion. And so uh, when I was in the White House, I really wanted bias training to be required of every faculty member who was on a training grant. So far that hasn't happened, but at least there's conversation about it. So, so I think you know, if we had every faculty member uh, who trains graduate students, train, say, every three years in unconscious bias, and just for one hour every three years had to think about it and maybe talk to their graduate students about it when they got back to the lab. I think that in itself would be a benefit because there are still many faculty who say, what's that when you talk about unconscious bias? Um, another policy was that we demanded that when the Precision Medicine Initiative research was launched, that it include a representation of people of color that was in proportion, at minimum, in proportion to their representation in society. I wanted over-representation because in some diseases you'd have so few that you would never get statistically significant data if you didn't over-represent them. Um, and now the, what's known as the All of Us Project, which is the NIH million people in precision medicine um, studies across the country, 
they do seem to be making an effort. I don't know the numbers yet, but they do seem to be making an effort to recruit from a very broad community. Um, so I think those are the kinds of things you can do in policy where it's basically using money to, you know, money is withheld if some uh, behavior isn't complied with, and I think that can help. Um, sometimes these policies are ignored, but they can help. And I, I think a lot of the rest of it is not necessarily policy, but more initiatives and efforts. So I think that a, an enormous area of influence is the entertainment media. And I think if we showed people more images of women and minorities as scientists in positive ways, not the mad scientist who wants to destroy the world with an engineered virus or something like that, but good people doing science for the reason that, in my experience, most people go into science, which is to help the world, um, I think we would see a very different face of science in, um, in the next decade. So I think that's an area where the government could invest, and that's a policy of type. And then that's an area that certainly um, foundations and more you know, private money could make a really big difference in. Yeah, what are the things, I guess, that you'd say you're most excited about that we want to leave everybody with a little bit of a positive <laughs> well, feel at the end? Because yeah. this, is, this is heavy stuff. Yeah, well, but it's, it's I mean, it's heavy, but yes. it's real. I mean, so, I mean, I think sometimes when we talk about this, sometimes it gets to a point where people kind of go, okay, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And then you can get up and walk out and go home and I have to deal with it. You know, as a woman, you can't do that because, you know, you're in that space, that physical space. As a black man, I can't do that either, right? So I think sometimes when we talk about these things, we just have to understand that it doesn't just stop at the door, okay? Talking about it is one thing. Throwing money at it is one thing, but actually showing the positive, uh, real efforts of what we're doing is probably a, a real key. Things like the Tiny Earth Program, right? This is a international program. So if you looked at the different types of people, you know, you had, you know, young black people, you had Hispanic people, you had women all involved in the science thing. That, that's a positive influence, right? So what happens then is that I can go out into the Madison community and I can point to that and say, hey, those are real examples. And then when young people say they want to be what they can see, then I can point to that and I can take them around in the community and I can bring them here and see those sorts of things that are happening. I think that's some of the positive things. But the doors have to be open. People have to be willing to, you know, um, you know push the envelope a little bit, right? Um, and when you do that, great things happen. And hopefully as we continue to grow here as an organization and other organizations around the world in science, we'll get to that point where we're not asking that question anymore. But we still got a long way to go. I think the single biggest thing I've learned is that simply keeping the conversation going and making diversity and representation of different kinds of people part of the everyday conversation that everyone has to have, whether they want to or not sometimes. <laughs> um, but you do begin to see groups coming out of the woodwork interested in representation and science. Um, you do start attracting graduate students of color who are interested in talking about the issues, and you make it just simply more comfortable for the people who are interested in, in dealing with the issues to talk about it in this community. It just feels a little bit safer. 
And so to do that, some of the things we've done is implement discussions of unconscious bias, of um, bystander behaviors, what, what you do when you see bad behavior. Um, we have mentor training coming up to try to teach mentors to deal more effectively with a breadth of mentees, not just the ones that look like clones of themselves. Uh, and then we have tried very, very hard to hire in a diverse way, and that has been really satisfying because we, as, as hard as it is in a place like Madison, Wisconsin, we have begun to diversify uh, the staff and, and faculty. And then we've started programs that I think will make a really big difference. We have one teaching writers about science to try to engage playwrights and screenwriters on um, science issues so that they have the material that they can then take into their writing and make scientists real people and diverse people. Uh, we have a mural project that is um, aimed at representing science across Madison and hopefully eventually beyond. So I think there are some very practical things we can do at a very local level. I also can say from my own perspective that the difference between being a professor when I started as an assistant professor decades ago and today is wildly it wildly different. The, the experience, you know, of being the only woman in a room, uh, which was routine in my early years. I would rarely be on a committee or in any kind of uh, setting at a campus level and be one of more than one uh, woman. And now that's pretty rare. It, it does occasionally happen, and there are pockets of the university that are extremely male. Um, and I notice that now, and it's kind of cool to be able to notice it as the different experience because in most cases I'm not the tiny minority anymore. So there are some changes. We've done less well, but still made improvements in people of color in science. And so I think if you look over a longer period of time, you see great advancement. And now the conversation is so much more integrated into what we do every day that I think we're going to see more rapid change in the next decades than we did in the last few. Is that a positive enough yeah, note to end that's on? Great, yeah. <laughs> now we want to hear from you in our Phone a Friend segment. Each episode, we'll interview a science policy enthusiast to get a fresh perspective on that episode's issue. Yeah. Yay, we're here. It's good. All right. Today, we have Tiara here to talk to us a little bit about some of these issues and respond to some of the conversation with Joe and Derek. So to get started, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourself and say a little bit about why these issues are important to you, just very briefly. Yeah, um, so my name is Tira Porter. I am a fourth year graduate student in the physiology program, um, and I'm also a instructor this semester at Madison College, a local community college here in town. So how do you go about advocating for representation in science today as a graduate student? Um, as a graduate student, it's kind of weird that I've gotten to this point where I actually have some sort of power <laughs> um, and I'm able to take the care to ensure that when I'm interviewing students that I can recognize the diversity that they specifically bring. Um, so I try and have that be one point where I really emphasize um, inclusion and marginalized groups. Also, I specifically chose to be an instructor at Madison College where there's this population of marginalized students that just have 
a lack of opportunities, not necessarily the lack of intelligence and the drive and motivation to get them where they would like to be. This is a little bit heavier, but I was wondering if you could talk about some experiences that you've had where you've been on the receiving end of bias in STEM and academia. Yeah, um, unfortunately, I would almost say that I experience bias every day. Um, and it's not always visible, but it's surely palpable. So it can be something just as lack of opportunities, um, lack of being taken seriously. You know, if I speak up and say something in a room with all white males, I'm gonna come off as being angry and black rather than if someone else were to say it, then it comes off as being strong and opinionated. Um, so just those tiny things every single day can really be felt and it takes a really long time to overcome that hurdle um, and to be able to speak up and say things that others are surely thinking. So um, not only being, you know, black and a woman in STEM, but also being queer as well has its own different levels of biases that can really hinder you from performing at your best on a daily basis. I'm wondering what are some of the things that you have found to be the most useful from people or other resources as you approach these um, challenges in your career? Yeah, um, there's the phrase, it takes a village, and it honestly is really true. So I pull support from a lot of different systems. Um, the support of your friends just telling you consistently that you are enough, that you're smart, and these are things that little black girls don't hear growing up. Um, and just being able to have that reinforcement is great. Your family's an amazing network. They don't necessarily understand the science that you do or fully understand your challenges, but they know you better than you know yourself. At sometimes it can be a burden where you just feel like you're carrying, um, especially as a first generation student, the entire family on your back and trying to really carry them in academia. Um, but they are always supportive of you and they'll remind you to never lose sight of who you are um, and to persist through anything that you can really tackle. Um, and having also faculty mentors as you go along each stage as well, having the ones that were ready and patient um, and that they were taking extra 10 minutes to explain something to you if you didn't get it, really taking note of an individual and not just the science that they can produce is something that is absolutely necessary and critical for marginalized groups to feel as though they one belong and two can succeed in STEM. Um, so getting back to the conversation with Joe and Derek, was there something that they said that really stuck out to you, particularly with respect to how do we go about making change to our world and what that looks like? Yeah, um, I think one of the things that really resonated with me was that representation is so critical early on that it needs to be, it's something much bigger than once you get to the grad school level and once you get to the college level. It's something that begins with the soil that you surround yourself in. And if you don't have a really good soil, then you just can't thrive and grow and you will never get to even being a seedling. Um, so having early representation, something as so simple as my mom did with having, you know, like always getting black Barbie dolls and going out of her way to ensure that I felt welcome and could see myself in the world is really important. Um, it's how Joe said, if you don't ever see anyone that looks like you in that field, then you don't even think it's something that's achievable or something that is for you. Um, so just having 
that really early exposure to different cultures and different races and different genders and all of these things that usually are just dominated by white males, particularly in STEM, could be really, really helpful and beneficial and change the way that children view the world for themselves as well, um, which I thought was really powerful. That's so good. Nailed it. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in today to listen to this conversation with Joe Handelsman and Derek Smith. If you are interested in this topic and would like to hear more about how marginalized and underserved populations' voices should be included in more conversations about STEM and policy relating to all sorts of topics, tune in next month. And if you'd like to have some of these conversations in person, you can join us at the annual National Science Policy Symposium here in Madison, Wisconsin this November. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter to find more about this theme or some of the other things that we do, you can find us at CASP underscore UW-Madison. Where can I get that magic wand from? <laughs> okay, okay, all right, okay, all right, all right. Let me know when you get that. <laughs>